Sheila Daz, and welcome to Flow, where we discuss the power and the problems of conversation. You know if you're here that you can follow us on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts. That way, you can be sure never to miss what's coming up. And I really welcome your feedback, so I encourage you to drop a message on our voice message link. It's always nice to hear what you're thinking about and any ideas you might have about the show. Nick Epley joins me today to talk about small talk with strangers and how certain misconceptions may keep us from saying hello more often or from getting deeper into more meaningful conversations. I kept finding myself reading about talking to strangers and small talk ever since my episode last January with Dylan Reed, when we spoke about public space. And the more I read, the more often I found I was reading about Nick Epley's work. And in his work, what comes out is just how wrong we can be in our assumptions about others in conversation. If we can understand that we have, quote, miscalibrated expectations about others' interest and care and our own experiences of enjoyment in conversation, perhaps we can get over this reluctance to engage with strangers. The gains can be big. Improved social lives increase happiness and longevity, and improved sociality could rebuild our frazzled societies through wider connections with those in our daily lives. The stakes really couldn't be bigger. Nick Epley is the John Templeton Keller Distinguished Service Professor of Behavioral Science and Director of the Center for Decision Research at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. We dig into his paper with Michael Kardas and Amit Kumar Overly shallow, miscalibrated expectations create a barrier to deeper conversations from 2022 and his 2014 book, MindWise. Published in more than two dozen empirical journals, his work has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, CNN, Wired, and National Public Radio, among others. Nick Epley, welcome to Flow. It's really great to have you on the program. Thank you for inviting me. It's very fun. Looking forward to this. <laughs> well, me too, obviously. Um, and I want to take as a starting point for our talk today, your fascinating research into how successful we are or not in reading each other's minds and picking up on cues as you lay out in your book, MindWise, how we understand what others think, believe, feel, and want. And while oftentimes it seems our mind reading guide is really quite good, it can be surprisingly way off the mark at other times. So small talk seems to be one of those times mm. it's mm. way off the mark. Mm -hmm. So I guess I want to be exploring what it is we get so wrong and mm -hmm. hopefully so we can understand better what we can get a little bit right. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. So I should say at the outset, um, it's it's 
it's important to keep the magnitude and nature of mistakes we make in perspective. So the reason why I'm interested in social cognition or mind reading, the inferences we make about each other's minds, isn't so much because we're terrible at it. In fact, if you look at, you know, around the planet, we are arguably the most socially sophisticated species on the planet. We've got a brain that's uniquely equipped for engaging with the minds of others. It allows us to do remarkable things like the thing we're doing right now, which is communicating thoughts and ideas and enabling learning without direct instruction or observation or experience. Um, and it, it really is what makes us, it really is what makes us special. If you look across primate species, um, you find that the size of the neocortex, the brain's neocortex relative to the rest of the brain, positively related in primate species, not with the physical complexity of the environment in which the species lives, but rather with the social complexity. The bigger the social group, bigger the, the neocortex relative to the rest of the brain. We're the most social of all primates. Our neocortex is about three times larger than our nearest primate uh, uh, ancestor, the Z, relative to the rest of our brains. And so th this is, <clears throat> for whatever shortcomings we have, it's also the thing that makes us remarkable. It's what enables us to cooperate, enables us to look into the future, dig back into the past, help each other learn coordinate with each other. It's the thing that makes us remarkable. But at the same time, as remarkable as we are, it's also a really, really hard problem yeah. to understand the mind of another, to understand what they're doing right now, to make sense of it, in order to also anticipate their actions in the future. So it's a really, really hard problem. And the mistakes we make, it turns out, aren't just because it's a hard problem. They're not just, it's not just noise. What's interesting to me is that if you if you can understand how our process of inference works to understand each other, you can understand the systematic errors that we make, mm -hmm. systematic gaps. And that's where I think the opportunity for wisdom lies. Understand others clearer is where we might be able to do better. And I, I think it's neat too, because some of the things I, I gained from uh, reading your work is that it's not only others we have difficulty understanding, but even our own minds. For sure, yeah, yeah. In fact, the same, the same mechanisms we use to understand the minds of others are what we actually often use to understand ourselves. And so are prone to the same kinds of, kinds of errors. Um, and But the errors that we make in our own minds of a particular variety, we have conscious experience that, that provides some reasonable access to what's going on in our heads. So if I ask you, if I want to know how you're feeling, for instance, there is no better guide than your self-report of that. And as skeptical as psychologists often are, and many others are about what people say about what's on their minds, at least in terms of reporting what's happening, what's going on in there, what are you thinking about right now, what are you feeling? We don't know of, you know, self-report self in those dimensions does very well. It approximates extremely well um, physiological measures of responses. It, it's, it, it's, it's, it's pretty good at that, pretty good at that. We're not so great at is psychoanalyzing ourselves. And I think projecting, like how we might be feeling. Yeah, in, that's right. In various circumstances. Absolutely. So we can, we can, 
we can say what's what's going on in our mind right now to say why it's happening. Like, why are you feeling this way? Turns out there we don't have access to the inner workings of our brains that are going to really dig through the causal mechanisms well. And as soon as we start looking into the future, then uh, we're doing the same thing we're doing with other people. And um, that's a hard problem, really hard problem. Yeah. We I mean, get, get also systematically wrong in lots of ways. I like it. And not because it's a hard problem. I like it because it just like blows your mind that you can't even figure these things out. That I think we take for granted that we have a handle on pretty well on our like from our daily experiences. For sure. We have all kinds of experiences in the past that think, you know, allow us to look into the future and anticipate how things are going to go. And the the thing about these inference processes, right? So if I'm trying to guess how my my wife is feeling a particular time or what she might want for an upcoming holiday as a gift, those processes brain work quickly, really quickly and quite easily, almost effortlessly. I look at my wife and she's smiling or she's not. And I think, oh, well, now I got it, right? She's happy or she's not, whatever. Uh, I think about what she might want for Christmas. I try to think back to something that she she said a, a little while ago or I kind of keep an eye on what she's doing. Ah, I got it. Uh, those processes work really easily. And because they work so easily, they can work easily at least, uh, and can work so quickly, when that happens, we don't pause to consider that we might be wrong. Mm-hmm. So people's confidence in their judgment, their belief that in, in how accurate they are, is really a function of how easily they come up with an answer to some question or how, how easy it is to render a judgment. That ease of processing is only weakly related to accuracy. It's not, it's not a great guide. Um, and so, yes, a lot of the things that we think we can do quite easily are more mistaken than we would guess. So I would like to take all of that and like turn that towards small talk. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Which is, I mean, it's a fun topic, but it's also, I think, a kind of a fun thing to do. Um, And I think about it a little bit um, as something that like I know well, because like I'm a human being, I've engaged in small talk and and. When I seem to encounter small talk, it usually happens spontaneously. Like that's how it it seems to me. It happens when I'm out and about, maybe like standing at a bus stop or like meeting someone on a sidewalk. It's something that we should probably, at least one of the big takeaways from your research is that we should probably do it more and maybe seek it out uh, more often. Mm-hmm. And like you've related, you've talked about that as uh, in terms of need and that people, quote, have a fundamental need to feel connected while we underestimate how felt it is in others. And then that leads that sort of misperception um, leads to us kind of shunning small talk instead of embracing that. So what is going on there? So you noticed a couple, you mentioned a couple of things. One is small talk sometimes just happens to us. Somebody will strike up a conversation with us or something will happen and we'll, boom, it'll spontaneously start a conversation. Those experiences, we, we can measure how they, uh, we can sense how they go. 
they're often perfectly pleasant, right? Uh, not always. I mean, sometimes people will claim they hate small talk. I, I get that. But at other times, you're making decisions. This is, a, again, where opportunities, I think, for wisdom arise. You're standing next to a bus stop, and you know, do you say hi to this, this guy standing next to you, this woman standing next to you? Um, you know, I'm walking down the sidewalk on the on the way home, and somebody comes up behind me. Do I strike up a conversation and and chat the rest of the way? You know, I was walking yesterday uh, morning into the the business school building where I work at the University of Chicago, and there were three some of our students. Um, do I say hello in that moment? And find is that when people actually think through these decisions about whether to engage or not, they tend to be miscalibrated in a systematic way such that they underestimate how much they're gonna actually enjoy this conversation or this moment of engagement if they have it. And as a result, I think are overly reluctant to engage in it when they actually think through it. Sometimes, sometimes you don't think through it. Sometimes small talk just happens to you. They will talk to you, right? Yeah. And you know it'll go how it goes. But when, when we're making those choices ourselves, we find systematic mistakes. And those systematic mistakes, I think, come from a few things. So we focus too much on competency when thinking about ourselves. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that other people tend to evaluate us, yes, in terms of our competency, but also, and even more so, in terms of our warmth. Yeah. Right? So you can be smart and you can also be kind in varying degrees on both. But in others' impressions of us and in our day-to-day -day experiences, the warmth is really, really powerful for people. We're a deeply social species. Mm -hmm. Somebody signals to us that they're taking an interest on, in us or they're doing something kind. That feels really good. Yeah. That then makes those, that interaction go pretty well. But when we think about ourselves, we tend to think about competency. Like, how am I going to do this thing? If these three people are walking up to the business school building. I've never met them before. What am I going to say? What are we going to talk about? How am I going to start this off? Do I have the right, you know, opening line? Whatever. Mm -hmm. We're too far on competency. It doesn't really matter. You say hello with a smile and you're off to the races there. Or, or more so than you would get. That component tends to go better than people expect it will. So when we put people in experiments and we ask them to have conversations with a stranger, sometimes it's out in the field, park in downtown Chicago or on trains or buses or cabs. We've run experiments in London on trains. When we ask people to have conversations with strangers, it tends not just to go well, it tends to go surprisingly well. Mm -hmm. the, whatever conversation they have, often small talk, sometimes deeper, it goes better than they think. Um, and I think part of it's because of this, this, this difference in how we evaluate ourselves versus how we're evaluated by others and what actually drives interactions. The other thing is that um, there's uncertainty in any interaction. Mm -hmm. Uncertainty that we tend to exaggerate. So the way social interactions go, the way they're governed, is by reciprocity particularly with strangers, just really powerful. The norm of reciprocity is just a universal guide for behavior. It's one of the most stable social norms on the planet. I'm nice to you, you're nice back to me. I yell at you, you yell back at me. It's just really powerful. Mm -hmm. I say hello, you say hi back and off you go. Yeah. And when people are anticipating, we find the outcomes of these interactions, they don't really 
they don't recognize how restricted the outcomes often actually are. How restricted they are. Imagine a much wider range of potential outcomes than they actually experience. So, okay. you know, I, I say hi to you and I don't know, you might flip me the middle finger or punch me in the face or you might be an ax murderer or God knows, right? You don't, maybe you'll say hi, sure, but you could just as well walk by and do nothing. Never mind, I won't do that. And that's just not, that's just not right. That's not right. <laughs> Um, you mean it's not right in the sense that it doesn't like accurately reflect what happens most often. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And and when we have you know uncertainty that's exaggerated, uh, lead us to be overly reluctant to engage. And then finally, I think the big thing is, is you noted we have all these experiences with small talk, all these experiences conversations. That's true, but there are also an awful lot of conversations you don't have that you never learn from. You only learn from the experiences you have and you don't learn from the ones you don't. So when you're making choices, right? When you're, when you're deciding, should I engage with this person or not? You learn from the conversations you have. Oh, I learned, oh, Sheila's delightful, right? We had this really great conversation. That was really fun. Sheila's a nice person. I'll talk to Sheila again next time uh, I see her. But if I don't talk to somebody else at the office, I won't find that person could have been yeah. delightful to talk to. That's to. true. Right. And that's how friendship often works. Right. You and I will talk. It's pleasant. Then next time I'll talk to you again and then again and then again. And then off we go. And I never find out what conversations with other people would have been like. If I think it wouldn't be pleasant to talk to you, I wouldn't do it. And I never find out it could be wrong. So, I mean, there's a lot there. And what I what I'm struck by right away is the idea of, of warmth, how important that is. You were talking about it in terms of like how the other person picks up on our warmth and how they really value that. And I was thinking, do we also somehow underestimate sometimes warmth in others and pay too much attention to like information? Because some people I know when they talk about how they don't like small talk and they say it's boring because I think it's, you know, not really informational, right? It's like, um, nice dog. Oh, yes, thank you, you know. <laughs> or, yeah. Like, yeah. Um, and is it is it possible that we sometimes don't really value then that warmth that people are expressing when they engage? Do, do you see that sort of flip side as well or not so often? So what, what we see, we haven't, we haven't, that's interesting. We have not measured that. That is, we, you're suggesting a possibility that when others show warmth, we're not detecting that perhaps. Or, or not appreciating it. Let's not, appreciating. not, not paying attention to that primarily. We're still, if we think we're kind of driving the conversation, we're thinking about what comes next, right? If we're the one who started it, we're doing the talking. I could see us being distracted from watching what others are actually doing. That could be. We haven't studied that. That's an interesting idea. Um, what we have studied is, is something that I think is related, which is how much are other people going to care about this? Like how interested are other people going to be in this conversation, which is a kind of warmth. And consistently in conversation, People tend to report that they're more interested in having it. So this is, for instance, on the trains coming in and out of Chicago, some experiments we were in. 
trans consistently thought they were more interested in having a conversation with another person around them than that person was in having a conversation with them. Mm -hmm. I'm interested, you less so. Mm -hmm. If everybody on the train feels that, even a little bit, that I'm just a little more interested than you are, how many people are actually going to start up a conversation? Nobody. Yeah. A single person is going to start that up. In conversations that could get deeper, right? Could get could go beyond the nice dog, lovely mm -hmm. weather we're having. We find that people are reluctant to go deeper and, and engage in meaningful conversation because they think other people don't really care. Yeah. And that they and that they turn out to be wrong about. They turn out to be wrong about that by their own judgment after they've had the conversation with that person. So I mean, when that, they have, that's bizarre. <laughs> well, so this is what we do, right? So in yeah. some of these experiments, we look at at small talk, just straight up conversation. We let people talk about whatever they want. They anticipate how much they're going to enjoy it, how connected they're going to feel to the other person. After the conversation, they report how they actually feel about it. In some of these experiments, we look at <clears throat> why people might be reluctant to go deeper than they normally would in conversation. Mm -hmm. And in the experiments, we ask, we give them questions to ask the other person, to discuss with the other person, not ask, but to discuss. Things like, what are you most grateful for in your life? Tell me about it. Or um, can you tell me about one of the last times you cried in front of another person? And they talk about that. Before those conversations, people indicate how interested they are, in the content of that conversation. And they also report how interested they think the other person in the conversation will be. And they consistently think that they're much more interested than others are. Mm. And that gap predicts their interest in having more small talk conversations, creates a reluctance okay. to go deeper. Yeah. But after the conversation, we ask them again, how interested were you in the content of the conversation and how interested was the other person? And at that point, the self-other gap disappears. Hmm. So, so does, that actually, mean, does that mean that then people become more open to engaging in these deeper ways um, after having experienced that conversation. And, and so it, it becomes- They say they, say they are, yeah. Okay. They say they are. Um, and that's a, that's, that kind of learning over time is a very hard thing for us as scientists to measure because we'd have to keep people keep people coming back and back and back and back and back. And that, that's just hard to do. But after they've had, so I'll, I'll tell you one result from an experiment. Um, we had had people have two conversations, one relatively shallow. What'd you do last Halloween? Where do you go get your hair cut? Tell me about the last time you walked for, for an hour. Right? Kind of smaller stuff. Or deeper talk. What you're most grateful for? Tell me about the last time you cried in front of a per another person. What'd be important for, thing for me if I was going to become a good friend of yours? Before the conversation, they thought they would prefer the shallow conversation more than the deep conversation. Mm -hmm. After having both of them, they said they significantly preferred the deep conversation more than the shallow one. And they said they would be more interested in having a conversation like that again. Mm -hmm. So if they had to choose, they preferred the deep one over the shallow one. Whether they actually follow through on that from one experience, I don't know and I doubt it. Yeah, still to be determined, I guess. But I guess for me, like on a personal level, when you mention those questions, you know, um, 
what's something you have gratitude for? Maybe that sounds easy to ask. It's not easy for me just to ask uh, to someone I don't know well. Um, but also anything that might make someone uncomfortable, like um, what's something you regret or when's the last time you cried in front of someone, I would be um, afraid of being too intrusive. Yep. Where, when conversation happens more organically, which it just did like <laughs> by happenstance a couple days ago, I was um, with a colleague I hadn't seen for a while due to the pandemic. So I opened with like one of my regular kind of post-pandemic openers, like, oh, I haven't seen you for a while. How good to see you. And like within less than 30 seconds, unprompted, she started telling me how difficult it is for her right now because she's an immigrant. And I started thinking, oh, she's an immigrant, she's dealing with problems with um, new legislation in Quebec. And no, it wasn't that. It was because she's an immigrant from Iran. And then I was like, oh. And then she was telling me that she was carrying all of this worry and, and uh, trauma from her time in Iran. And then she's dealing with anxiety also right now for what's going on. And it was this huge, really meaningful, um, you know, serious conversation that happened in a few minutes, but somehow it was unprompted. Yeah. Um, so they can happen that way. Yes. My bet is that my bet is that it was probably prompted a little more than you'd guess just by your general openness and her awareness that you would be hmm. just ask how she's doing and, and her knowledge that you would be open to hearing about this and talking with her about this. Um, you seem like a very easy person to talk with, uh, I'll say. Um, but they can also be prompted too. And I think our data suggests not that there's anything, not, not that you should ask the questions that I, that, you know, I, that I shared with you with another person. That's just what we do in our experiments to make sure that people have deep and meaningful kinds of conversations as we give them stuff to talk about. Because if we don't do that, they tend not to go there. Okay. They tend not to do that. But um, our data instead suggests that you can go deeper in conversation than you would guess. And the way to do that is to care about the other person. Once you start taking a genuine interest in another person, how they're doing, what they're thinking about, what their experiences have been, what you might be able to learn from them in conversation, they're quite naturally. I had a student in my office today. Um, you know, we, we spent a lot of time talking about um, research. He's a, a dear friend and former student of mine. And at the end, I, I want to know how he was doing at home as a person. And that opened up a really meaningful conversation uh, that went way deeper than than I would have guessed at the time. And that didn't come because I asked a particular question. It came because I was interested in how he was doing. And I was willing to ask him in a way that was clearly genuine and it was meaningful. So, you know, our data simply suggests that in conversation, if you'd like to have a more meaningful conversation, you can in a way that would likely go better than you'd guess. And 
I, I want to develop more the idea then of like the gain. So you've talked about like you feel more satisfied and that you've actually measured certain gains about how people feel after conversations um, that are deeper as feeling even more satisfied and even happier than when they have, um, let's say, what you call maybe shallow, shallow. Shallow, yeah, right. Just, yeah, more or less intimate conversations, yeah. So what is the measurement on that? Like, how how wrong are we? Can you give us some sort of idea to, like, be really convincing that we should be embracing these deeper levels of conversation? Let me first say, when we started this work, so... So we started work years ago trying to understand why a highly social species like us with brains uniquely equipped to the minds of, to connect with the minds of others often don't. Mm-hmm. There's just a lot of dead silent space yeah. out there with people in close proximity who don't engage with each other. Like what is going on there? Why are people not engaging? And one possibility is that it would be unpleasant in those circumstances to engage in conversation or connect with a stranger. And that turns out not to be right. Uh, that, it, it turns out that people expect those interactions to be worse than they actually are. So they're behaving in line with their expectations, but their expectations are just miscalibrated there. And then we started wondering, well, once you're in conversation, you have to figure out what to talk about, right? And, and, and how deep to go. It turns out that, that deeper conversations, uh, a, little more, a little more positive for, for people. And we were curious uh, whether people might also have a, similar misunderstanding about how positive those deep conversations actually be if they went there. And so we started running some experiments comparing relatively shallow or less intimate conversations. You know, what'd you do last holiday? Tell you about the last time you walked for more than an hour or talk about whatever you normally do compared to a deeper conversation. And it turns out people underestimate how much they're going to enjoy both of them. Mm-hmm, okay. And they overestimate how awkward both of them will be, although they overestimate awkwardness more for the deep conversation by about a factor of two. So, you know, we measure these on subjective scales that you can really only compare against people's own responses on the same scale later. So, you know, before a deep conversation on a scale that goes from zero to 10, zero being not awkward at all, to 10 being very awkward, they'll about a five. after the conversation, they'll say, on average, it's about a two. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And for a shallow conversation before it, they'll say they think it's going to be awkward about two and a half. And afterwards, they say about one and a half. Mm-hmm. It turns out the deeper conversations are a little more awkward than the shallow yeah. ones, people report. Um, but they also underestimate how positive they're going to be. We ask them, how much are you going to enjoy the conversation? How much are you going to like your partner? How strong a bond are you going to feel? And again, there on those positive things, they also underestimate how much they're going to enjoy small talk, but they underestimate deep talk a little more, not by a crushing amount. So, I mean, okay. one thing we could take from our results is that um, what at least was surprising to me was, was how much people actually enjoyed small talk um, more than they expected. But deep talk was still better. But still, when we pitted these directly against each other, that the deep conversation was a little more awkward than the shallow one. They also said it was a lot more positive and they wanted to do that one again um, by about two to one. It seems to be that if if you can 
understand that um, your awkwardness is a little bit misplaced at least, and that people around you have more care than you expect them to, that you can actually reach um, and generate, you know, create really nice exchanges and meaningful exchanges with people around you. You mentioned something about curiosity a moment ago that I liked, and I did want to kind of like go deeper there, having that curiosity, which is a kind of care really for other people. But I think it's also a kind of expectation that someone will be interesting, will be delightful. And I read in um, reading some of your work that we can be confronted sometimes with ego bias where instead of assuming the best in other people, we tend to think they won't be, I guess, as interesting or perhaps feel as deeply as we do. Yeah. Does that contribute here to some of the that reluctance? You know, so um, I actually, I don't, maybe, maybe in the, in the belief that other people don't care as much about the meaningful content um, and as, as I will, I think it does contribute there. Interestingly, we find that people also underestimate how much they're gonna learn in conversations. It's not just the hedonic elements that you get out of conversation, the feeling of connection and enjoyment, but also the more pragmatic aspects of what am I actually going to learn? People underestimate learning too. And there we thought that one reason people might underestimate learning in conversation is because they just don't know what is between another person's ears and hence might imagine that there's not much there to learn from. But we actually didn't find that at all in our experiments. People actually thought they had more to learn from others than others had to learn from them. So that didn't seem to be explaining what was going on uh, in those those conversations. Uncertainty about the content of the conversation, not knowing what you would talk about or how you would carry the conversation along, not knowing where the conversation would go, led people to think that it was kind of gonna go nowhere. So yeah, the uncertainty element um, then looms largest. I think so. Now we talk about that. You've talked about that as as like a barrier. We've been talking about that t- today as as a barrier, as a potential barrier to, you know, us being open to to others and small talk, shallow or deep. Um, but there are a couple other barriers that I think people might be thinking of, um, and one is just like personality. And I know you've controlled for that, <laughs> but like some people can say, "Well, I I'm shy." Um, that might be good for other people, but it's not good for me. So, so, so I'll say I'm not a personality psychologist, so I had to learn all of this stuff, dig into this research, and I'm up neck in it right now, writing, um, writing a chapter for a book, I'm, a new book I'm working on. The data make it crystal clear that people underestimate enjoyment of these interactions, um, regardless of whether they are relatively introverted or extroverted. And if anything, those who are introverted tend to underestimate how much they're gonna enjoy these interactions even more than those who are extroverted. That's That's not a result you see everywhere, 
There are some demonstrations of that effect, some published demonstrations like that. Um, often introverts and extroverts will underestimate um, enjoyment of these things to the same degree. Mm -hmm. But what is crystal clear, not, not from my work, from, from other work in, uh, in the field of personality, is that personality psychologists have noticed since the 1980s, since the very first work was done on happiness, actually the scientific study of happiness started around the 80s, was that extroversions positively correlated with happiness. It's just a crushingly result. It just shows up. It, 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 any survey that includes a measure of personality and well-being will find that extroverts are happier than, uh, than introverts. And that raises the, raised the question among personality psychologists about whether, um, raise the question of whether acting extrovert or doing those things would actually make everybody happier. Whether even if you're introverted, yeah, and you can imagine that you know, it's easy to imagine that no, no, you know, introverts are, are their own equilibrium just right, and they don't get as much energy and enjoyment from being with others. But the data just show that's not true, just flat out not true. Over and over and over and over again, when psychologists take introverts and extroverts and ask them to act extroverted, both groups get happier. When you ask them to act introverted, both groups get less happy. So um, would it be fair to say that between the two groups, it's more a question of, again, awkwardness and readiness rather than the outcome of happiness? Yes. Yes, that's exactly what it is. The way to think about personality is as a habit, a set of habits mm -hmm. and a set of expectation for what to do. It's not that introverts enjoy social interaction any less. It's that they do it less. So that barrier might be there but the, the gains are still there to be had. Exactly, exactly. If you want to have them, not, not, you know, not everybody, this is just, again, a little bit of wisdom, I think, that behavioral science can provide. If, if, you are, uh, if you're kind of feeling in a funk in your life and you'd like to feel a little better, the data make it clear, go out and connect with folks, mm -hmm. engage, say hi to people, just start smiling at folks more often. Um, yeah, I think even smiling just makes oneself feel better. I <laughs> think there's that connection. <laughs> for sure. So I find this data on introversion and extroversion really super fascinating. In our own data, we don't find differences in enjoyment of these social interactions at all between introverts and extroverts. Um, and that's consistent across the across the field. Very robust effect. And I guess just to follow up on that, like, because we can think about that on an individual level, but we also can uh, look at, let's say, cultural traits, maybe cultural norms within, you know, gross generalizations within certain communities. Like I'm thinking about comparing American culture, Canadian culture, and British culture. And if we, if we take those stereotypes at face value that Americans are just more more open, more friendly, more gregarious, Canadians a bit less so, and then, you know, Brits may be quite reserved. So um, what have you learned or, or, or what, what, is, what is the sort of state of, of the studies concerning cultural interactions and small talk? So it looks, um, it looks a little similar to the introversion extroversion effects. Okay. Um, which is so so the you know we, we don't have a we don't have a ton of data on this so I don't want to I don't want to get too far out ahead of our skis some of this is 
will be more theorizing from, from me. But we did run a, we ran a replication of some experiments that we did on the trains and buses and cabs here in Chicago, where we had people try to have a conversation with a person there, and we compared that against their expectations. We ran a version of versus keep to themselves and sit in solitude. Here in the US, we found that uh, people, train commuters, for instance, coming in and out of Chicago, reported having a more positive commute when we asked them to engage another passenger in conversation, someone who sat down next to them, than when we asked them to keep to themselves and sit in solitude or do whatever they normally do, connect better. But they actually expected the opposite result. They expected to have the most commute if they kept to themselves and the least positive commute if they talked to a stranger. In London, we ran a somewhat similar experiment, although we, um, we ran the same experiment where we had people randomly assign them to talk to a stranger on the train or keep to themselves or do whatever they normally do. And we asked them to anticipate how that would go before. Prediction uh, was a little different because in, in London, they were already in that condition. So they were anticipating how much they were going to enjoy an upcoming conversation. People underestimated in London how much they would enjoy the conversation, but they actually thought they would enjoy it more, the commute more if, if they had a conversation than if they kept to themselves, which is interesting. But what we found in terms of people's actual experience was that the Londoners look exactly the same as the Americans. If anything, the effects of engaging in conversation there look like they might have been a little bigger. If you, they enjoyed their conversation even a little bit more relative to the control and solitude groups than the Americans did. So my, my hypothesis about differences you see around the world, right? So if you go... If you go to Japan, as my Japanese students will tell me, you're, like, you never, you're not, you're not going to talk to a stranger on the train. Folks in Chicago don't either, it turns out. We all sit there in solitude too, mostly, except for me. I've got a whole <laughs> army of train friends now. I spent this evening talking to Thibaut. A uh, guy grew up in France, now studies um, Bengali poetry here at the University of Chicago. Um, what I think varies across cultures is not the experience of social engagement. I think that's just the deeply human phenomena. Feel better when you're engaged and connected in a positive way with another person. What I think varies across cultures is likely to be people's beliefs and expectations. Yeah, and what is, and I guess this idea of feeling like what is socially acceptable in this group that I'm currently with? Yeah. That's right. And, and that creates a barrier to what you actually do. It doesn't necessarily affect your experience of actually doing this thing. So uh, a couple of weeks ago, for all of our incoming MBA students, I a session with them during their orientation about building culture. And I run them through a deep talk demonstration where they anticipate how this is going to go and then report how, they act, how it actually went. And during that debriefing where I'm talking about, we're talking with students about what happened, a number of the students were in tears describing, mm. describing how good that conversation was. And one student said how the first time she really felt like she belonged here was when she, a couple of days ago, cried in front of a bunch of her classmates, which I think was not likely a common experience for her. No, I imagine creating yeah. a sense of belonging. And the, wow. the whole room, you know, clapped for her. She felt just really deeply loved there. But if you think that's not appropriate to kind of express your emotion in that way or to be, 
be open and vulnerable to people. Now, you'll never do it and you'll never find out how kind people can be sometimes in those moments. But I mean, in a setting like that, wouldn't it feel more appropriate because it's being asked of you? You might think that you would feel less awkward there. You might expect to feel less awkward than if it was in another uh, circumstance. My bet is that the actual experience isn't going to vary that much across contexts. Okay. Okay. I get it. <laughs> That's all right. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that makes sense to me. And I like also the idea that like expectations can be off, but would it also be something um, that I don't, I haven't read in what I've read of you, maybe you re wrote it elsewhere, but I haven't read anything about practice. And I, I think practice can actually make people just more open to something when they've done it a few times. And like going back to cultural differences, is it possible that in some cultures um, that are maybe more gregarious, that that is something that's just practice more? Yes, absolutely. I actually think practice is the only thing that will calibrate people's expectations. Clinical psychologists already know this. So clinicians who deal with anxiety disorder, they have a go-to treatment for it that works, works really, really well. Do you know what it is? I don't, but I'm guessing it's like, Practice whatever. It's practice. <laughs> yes, it's practice is what it is. That's exactly yeah. what it is. Yeah. In particular, they tend to do things like try something that's a little extreme. So they often will take your biggest fear and have you go do that thing. Mm -hmm. And the reason they do that is because your expectations are off. Yeah. And you don't know that unless you try it. Two things I think that happen with practice. One is the part that you might have been thinking of that everybody thinks of, which is practice makes perfect. Like you get better at this. Mm. But I actually don't think that's where the problem is. Okay. The problem isn't that you need to learn how to be a better conversationalist. Mm. There is some wiggle room for that, sure. They already go well when we just throw people together and have them have a talk. They don't need practice. It's great when they do it once. What practice does is it gives you the data you need in order to understand how these will actually go. So when you don't try, you don't know how it's going to go. If I don't have a conversation with you, probably it will be to talk with you. Yeah. And I find out when I try. Yeah. And so experience or practice matters, I think, not because it makes you better mm -hmm. so much as it calibrates your expectations to reality. No research I've, no research I've worked on in my entire career has changed the way that I live my own life like this does. Hmm. Nothing, nothing close. I don't have barriers to engagement anymore. And so I was thinking about other barriers, again, that you, I think, nod to um, in different places that I come across a lot, right? Like people wearing um, earphones or people having their heads down so they're not even open to like be, to make eye contact. Um, like we could just say like any sort of technological barrier or any other physical barrier that says like, don't engage with me. Yeah. That's a lot of people today. I, I would say it's the majority of people today that are in transit at least. That, yeah. um, and this might not be your area per se, but like, do you have any ideas of how we could maybe overcome those barriers? So, um, tools of distraction, as I like to refer to them as, those are ambiguous as to what they mean. 
right? So when I get on the train, I just bought a pair of earbuds a week ago. I had never had them before. And, but, you know, every now and then I'd like to listen to music or listen to a podcast or something. So I, oh, I'll try it. I, I wore them one day and I hated them. Um, I can wear them around the house, but when I'm out in public, I hate it because it's too isolating. It really mm-hmm. it feels discombobulating for me. And so I don't care for it. Um, but when other people wear them or when you do wear them, you know, you, it could be like me. Like you, it's not that I would be unhappy to talk. It's just if nobody else is talking, maybe you'd put them in so that you had something to listen to. And so I, so, so the signal that they send is actually very unclear. It, we might take it as a sign that people don't want to talk to them. It is. There's some people put them in who, who don't want to talk. Fine. Uh, you probably don't want to talk to them either. That's okay. I think the way to handle these signals is to clarify them. And the way you clarify them is you smile and you say hello to somebody. Mm-hmm. So you sort and of like test the boundaries. Say, yeah. And if they smile and say hello to you back and take their earbuds out so they can hear you, well, there you are. I got a buddy now, Mitch, on the train, who the first day I saw him, he's a, he's probably, a, I guess, 27-year-old African-American man. Looks like he could pick me up with one arm. I mean, really fit-looking guy. He's got a beard. Like, he could really open up a can of whoop-ass on somebody if he felt like it. I mean, it's a tough-looking guy. Okay. And we got off the train one day. But he, oh, he's, he, he, he was at the University of Chicago clearly walking to campus one day, he got off the train. I'd seen him a few days, but I never said hello. And he got off one day and was walking up behind me and um, he had his earbuds in. And I turned around and I said hello and I waved to him. And I saw something happen that now, I now think of as the switch. Mm-hmm. As if, you know, somebody's got a switch on their mm-hmm. body that you just, yeah. as if, you know, they go from off to on, just like that. Yeah. And I said, hi, and I waved to him. And his face just lit up. It went from this tough-looking, you know, kind of guy who, you know, to huge smile. Took his earbuds right out. We had a lovely conversation. We say hi to each other every day uh, now when I, when I see him. And I wouldn't have known that if I hadn't said hello. The guy I talked to today on the train, oh, same thing. This guy. He was wearing... He was wearing headphones the first time I talked to him. Yeah. And, you know, he looks kind of scary, like a Greek Orthodox monk. He's got a big uh, gray, you know, he's a serious looking man. And he had his headphones in and he looked very serious. As soon as I waved and said hello, his face lit up, big smile. Uh, We had a great conversation. Now, whenever he sees me coming, he takes his headphones <laughs> out nice, yeah. and says hello so that we can so that we can talk. So, you know, I think the I think the right approach to those ambiguous signals is to clarify them. And if you say hi and wave at somebody and they don't respond to you, well, okay. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's it's fair enough that like you're yeah. just sort of discovering yeah. what someone's interest yeah. is and they might exactly. not be they might be tired. There could be lots of things going on. Absolutely. Fine. Great, no problem. That's it's no issue. But if they'd be happy to talk, if somebody were talking to them, well, you'll find out. Well, I hope um, for our listeners that your uh, studies and your enthusiasm about small talk will be contagious. <laughs> and, you know, encourage people to to give it a go a little bit more often. 
I think our data suggests that you can test it. Like you don't have to trust me on this. Yeah. I mean, I, I, this has fundamentally changed the way I live my life because I've seen thousands and thousands of data points. I know it's not unique to me or to a single person's experience. And so I test it in little ways. Just the way to think of it is this exercise, right? This try a little, see how it goes, try a little more and you get better at it. And I like that idea of testing it and like putting it into practice because also um, I remember reading a couple of months ago, a column, an opinion piece by David Brooks um, where he was um, writing about you and your ideas. And I think at one point he said, you know, they were very compelling and also very important because by these small connections, um, these small acts of daily kindness, I think he said, we can actually rebuild, you know, the country. Um, in, in the case, he was speaking of, of the U.S. And, um, and yet, even he at the very end didn't seem able, didn't seem able to get, like, to make that connection for him, his intellectual understanding that this is a good thing and get over this sort of, you know, visceral discomfort, like, hmm, maybe not for me, though, or maybe not right yeah. now. Yeah. And so, like, the idea of practicing and testing it yeah. out, we can become maybe just a little bit gradually more at ease uh, yes. in our own social worlds. Yes. There are two things that you will learn when you start trying to engage more often. One is that it goes better than you think. It's likely to, right? Mm -hmm. So that's one thing you learn. Other people are just nicer than you might guess when you reach out to them. Other thing that you learn when they're not, like when they don't want to engage you, or when you, when you fail or when you're rebuffed, it's not bad. Like it's okay. You know, so the person doesn't want to engage. Okay, great. Right. But you know, for every one of those, you're going to have two or three or four more flight, the last flight I was on, David said he couldn't strike up a conversation on his flight. The last flight I was on, I sat next to a pediatrician, a Muslim uh, pediatrician, who uh, happened to know one of my neighbors here. This was on a flight to, yeah, happened to know one of my neighbors here, had a, had a son, an 11-year-old son who had Down syndrome. We adopted a, a, our daughter's six now, uh, who had Down syndrome, which connected us on all sorts of levels. Yeah. Super interesting. And the woman next to her along the window um, had all these things in common with us as well. Really deep, meaningful, personal experience, including involving really intense loss. I mean, we were we were all crying in that airplane seat for uh, certain stretches, all tearing up. And that's really great. That was nice. And you'll learn that those experiences happen when you try. And, and I think you'll learn it's worth it. Well, um, I'm certainly going to be trying to add a little bit more small talk into my life and deep talk too. Yeah. Um, and um, thank you for kind of showing us that it's worth it. Good. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to have had this conversation. Thanks so much for asking me to do it. episode of Flow, we got a special sound correction from Felix Norton, so a big thanks goes out to you. The music is edited by Rebecca Akune, and original music by Glenn Etier, performed by Caitlin May Wong, 
and Jonathan Zituni. And a special thanks, as always, goes to Bruce Norton. Follow us to stay in the flow. <laughs>